Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The conflict in Yemen is something that I've returned to frequently in this podcast over the years. The very first Yemen episode I published was in early April 2015. This was just two weeks after Saudi Arabia launched a military intervention in Yemen, turning a local civil war into a regional conflict. Back then, Saudi Arabia and a coalition that included several Gulf states and with American backing launched a military offensive on behalf of the internationally recognized government of Yemen. The government had been overthrown and expelled from the capital city Sana'a by an insurgent group that is often referred to as the Houthi rebels. Six years later, the Houthi rebels still control Sana'a as well as many key cities, towns, and ports in Yemen. Meanwhile, the conflict has metastasized, and now includes not only fighting between the Houthis and the Saudi-led coalition, but also several localized conflicts. All this fighting has made Yemen the world's worst humanitarian disaster. Millions are displaced, and much of the country is on the brink of famine. But as bad as things are right now, it looks like it's about to get worse. As I speak, the Houthis are in the midst of a new offensive in a region called Marib. Some 400,000 people live here. Mostly, these are people who have been displaced by fighting elsewhere. The international humanitarian community and Yemen watchers everywhere are extremely concerned about this new offensive. At the same time, international diplomatic efforts around resolving parts of the conflict are starting to pick up after years of stasis. This is in large part due to the Biden administration declaring that it will no longer support Saudi-led war efforts and Biden has appointed a new presidential envoy to lead U.S. diplomacy on Yemen. My guest today, Gregory Johnson, is a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution and an internationally regarded expert on the Yemen conflict. From 2016 to 2019, he served on the U.N. Security Council's panel of experts on Yemen, This is a group that is tasked with monitoring compliance with arms embargoes and sanctions imposed by the Security Council. We kick off discussing the situation in Marib before having a longer conversation about how the conflict in Yemen has evolved over the years and where it may be headed next. And as I mention almost every episode, please feel free to reach out to me directly if you have suggestions of people you'd like me to interview or topics you'd like me to cover or anything else that might be on your mind. I love hearing from you. Uh, You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or use the contact button on the homepage, globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Gregory Johnson of the Brookings Institution. 
looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So Marib is out in central Yemen. It's east of Sana'a, the capital city of, of Yemen, which is held by the Houthis. Marib in pre-unification Yemen, which is back before 1990, was a part of North Yemen. Marib's significant for a couple of different reasons. So Marib has, um, at least in Yemen standards, fairly significant oil fields, which is something that the Houthis desperately need. Because right now the Houthis control the northern Yemeni highlands, where about uh, 60 to 70% of the population lives. The Houthis are basically landlocked with the exception of the Hudaydah port, um, which is in the Red Sea coast. But they don't have, even though, the, even though the Houthis have control over most of Yemen's population, they don't have control over most of Yemen's natural resources, the oil and the gas fields, which are in places like Marib, as well as in um, uh, neighboring governorate Shebwa, as well as in Hadramu, which is further east. So Marib is important for the Houthis economically. If they can take that city, if they can take that, then they can get a hold of the oil fields, which then will help to make them self-sustaining. And, and their goal is, at least the way I see it, to form themselves as a, some sort of a nation state. And they've taken some steps towards that in the last couple of years. So if they take those oil fields, that puts them in a good position economically to resist any outside pressure to sort of give up what it is that they gained over the past few years and become part of a unified Yemeni government. By taking Marib, they would basically give themselves the, the leverage and the position to remain an, an independent entity um, ruling over, over the North. It would also, simultaneously, it would further weaken this anti-Houthi coalition, which is um, a number of different Yemeni groups, the Yemeni government, as well as the Saudi-led coalition, which right now really has control over, over Marib, particularly one group, um, a political party with allies in the military known as Islah. Um, Islah is part of the anti-Houthi coalition, but they have a number of enemies within that coalition. And so that infighting, that bickering, what the Houthis are attempting to do is push through um, and take the city of Marib, and then they'd also be poised to move farther east. And this is a this is an offensive that has been ongoing since early 2020, but it's recently over the past two weeks, and we're talking now in mid-February, has really picked up steam. Mm -hmm. So my understanding is that this region, Marib, was rather sparsely populated until the war in Yemen broke out and escalated in 2014, 2015, and since then has seen a lot of IDPs land in this area. I think I saw a briefing from a humanitarian agency saying that the population went from like 40,000 to 400,000 in just a couple of years. Does that strike you as correct? And second, it would suggest that should fighting intensify in this area, you're talking about just a massive humanitarian catastrophe uh, that could unfold. 
Yeah, I mean, Yemen, the, the country is really a massive humanitarian catastrophe, and this this will just make it make it worse. What you said, Mark, is exactly right. Um, Marib is a place that was relatively sparsely populated um, up until the beginning of the war, and you saw a number of families that were moving from Sana'a when the Houthis took over and from the northern highlands as the Houthis sort of expanded their reach. They were fleeing in different directions, and one of those directions was out toward Marib, which was under the control of the Yemeni government. Government. And so there's a number of IDPs that live there. There's also um, African refugees who are on their way to Saudi Arabia. There's a couple of uh, encampments of those out there. There's some IDP camps. And so what happens if the Houthis come in, then you'll see, and I think we're already starting to see this, at least from some of the, the Yemenis I've talked to there on the ground, that some of these IDPs are moving and they're moving into places like Shebwa. They're moving um, farther south or they're moving out east into, into Hadramut. So um, Yemen, as is unfortunately so often the case over the past six years, what is the the world's most dire humanitarian crisis continues to get worse. And, you know, we're speaking uh, a day after the Security Council held a briefing on Yemen. I caught some of it. And, you know, it, what was interesting to, to me is that you had this juxtaposition almost from people like the UN envoy in Yemen, uh, to Yemen, Martin Griffiths, and the top UN humanitarian official, Mark Lowcock, um, you know, talking simultaneously about the disaster that is potentially unfolding in Marib and the humanitarian disaster throughout the country, uh, but also that there is this seeming potential for a new diplomatic opening in Yemen with the new administration. Can you discuss the significance of some of the Biden administration's new uh, early moves on Yemen and what difference those moves might make in the trajectory of the conflict? Yeah, and and here I think it's 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 important to talk about what I think is happening on the ground in Yemen. So I think we often talk about Yemen as being this country that uh, that is at war, and that's true. But I think we often talk about Yemen as being part of this one war. And I think it's more helpful to think about Yemen as being there's three separate but overlapping wars that are taking place simultaneously in Yemen. And there's and I think it's just helpful to name them real quickly. There's yeah, the please go, yeah, go, go through that. That's helpful. So there's the U.S.-led war on on terrorism, which is the U.S. war against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and ISIS. This is a war that's been going on basically for the last 20 years since um, the U.S.S. coal attack in 2000, but certainly since 9-11. So that war is going on. No one's talking about ending that war. The U.S. has made very clear that it's going to continue counterterrorism operations in Yemen. So that's and, one And war. this war has primarily been waged through drone strikes and, and the like, right? Yeah, drone strikes. There's been fixed wing aircraft. The, the U.S. has shelled suspected Al Qaeda encampments, some of which turned out not to be Al Qaeda encampments with um, with naval ships off the coast of Yemen. So the U.S. Is, and there have been a few raids. In fact, very early in the Trump administration, there was a SEAL raid, which which led to the death of one. Um, uh, U.S. Uh, special operator, as well as some Yemeni civilians in Yemen. So, but it, but there's there's not a lot of um, boots on the ground, if you will. It's it's mm-hmm. mostly been drone and, and airstrikes. Uh, the second war is the war that gets the most most of the attention. This is the Saudi-led uh, war, which Saudi Arabia sees themselves as fighting an Iranian proxy in the Houthis. So this is what I would term almost the regional war. And when we think of Yemen and being at war, this is the war that we tend to think of. The war that we miss, which I think is the important one of the 
One of the really important things, which I don't know if the Biden administration has a great handle on right now, is the local Yemeni civil war. So everything that the UN and the US doing is right now um, devoted to what I term the the regional war, the the Saudi-led war against the Houthis. So the U.S. uh, named a a special envoy, Timothy Lenderking, um, as soon as the Biden administration came into office. He's going to be working with the U.N. special envoy. And basically what they're trying to do is bring an end to this Saudi-led war against the Houthis, get the Saudis to withdraw, establish some sort of a peace deal um, between the Houthis and the Yemeni government. The problem with this approach is that it basically ignores this third war, this sort of local Yemeni civil war. So the Houthis and the Yemeni government in this third war, in this civil war, are only two of a multitude of actors. And so you could have a situation where Saudi Arabia withdraws from Yemen tomorrow, but the war in Yemen goes on and on and on. And in fact, the humanitarian situation gets worse because then you have all these various armed groups that basically are just trying to um, seize and hold as much territory as as possible. And so I think that that's where it makes the situation really complicated is that the Biden administration, the UN are very eager to sort of work and put pressure on, on Saudi Arabia. The, the Biden administration and the UN don't have a lot of leverage on the Houthis, which is one of the reasons that we're seeing, say, the Houthis advance toward Madhab right now in 2021 in a way that um, the Saudis and the Emiratis were not able to take Hudaydah in 2018, if you remember back to that point when yeah. the U.S. put some pressure on Saudi Arabia and the UAE not to go in because of fears of the humanitarian uh, fallout from, from that military offensive. The U.S. doesn't have that same sort of leverage that it can use to pressure the Houthis. And so the Houthis are continuing to, to move toward to move toward Mada. And I think it's worth emphasizing that last point that, um, you know, a couple of years ago, the Saudi led coalition and UAE were trying to attack this port, this key port, Hodaida, held by the Houthis and the US at the time and the UN, uh, fearing a humanitarian catastrophe should uh, fighting disrupt operations at the port, um, pressed successfully uh, the Saudis and their Emiratis to hold off on that offensive and actually were able to um, pass a Security Council resolution, creating some sort of monitoring mechanism in in that area. Um, But you're saying that that same dynamic, because the U.S. lacks leverage over the Houthis, because the U.N. lacks leverage over the Houthis, um, there's no ability to stop that offensive in Marib right now. Um, is, Is that a fair characterization? It is. And I would also say that um, when looking back at Hudaydah, the UN sort of put this deal together um, and we don't need to go back and sort of relitigate past history. um, But the U.S. put the UN put this deal together that was supposed to see um, sort of the Houthis handover control of the port and the city. And that was a deal that and even this monitoring mechanism, it just never really came to fruition. And in fact, Mm -hmm. it um, you know, the Hudaydah, Hudaydah deal has been pointed to over the past couple of years as, as being a failure. And I think everybody but the UN at this point admits that it's been a failure. Um, but on the point with, with regards to Marib, certainly the US and the UN lack any sort of diplomatic pressure that they can put on the Houthis to get them to um, to cease the offensive into Marib. And where it looks a little bit worse for the US and for the Biden administration is that the Marib offensive really started picking up steam again in early February right as the Biden administration was revoking the um, terrorist designation for the Houthis. So the Trump Mm -hmm. administration 
administration on the last day, last full day that the Trump administration was in office. Then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo um, designated the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. This was on January 19th of this year. Um, the Biden administration came into office, said they were going to do a review. They did that review. Secretary of State Blinken then revoked the foreign terrorist organization just as the U.S. was doing that. The Houthis really started to press toward um, toward Marib, which a number of Yemenis have taken as um, the U.S. Um, revoking the designation. A number of Yemenis have pointed to that and saying uh, that it really emboldened the the Houthis. Mm. I don't quite buy that argument. I think the Houthis were going to do what the Houthis were going to do anyways. But certainly, the optics don't look particularly great for the U.S. And, and it's well, it's worth also pointing out that um, the reason the U.S. revoked this designation uh, was the fear from the humanitarian community uh, that. Um, designating the Houthis a foreign terrorist organization would massively disrupt ongoing humanitarian operations. So you had like every humanitarian agency, almost everyone I could think of was stridently opposed to this designation for fear that it might mean that they would have to cease work in parts of Yemen controlled by the Houthis. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The the designating the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization was not going to do anything to change the behavior of the Houthi leadership. The Houthi leadership was largely going to be insulated from the short, the food shortages or the medicine shortages or anything like those. That, that was going to impact mm-hmm. the Yemeni civilians long before it had any sort of an impact on the Houthi leadership. And it was really a in my opinion, a very poor decision by the Trump administration and something that created a lot more problems for the Biden administration than than they really needed as they as they attempted to to go in. It was essentially using um, the the civilians in, in Yemen as a as a pawn. But I do get your point that in Yemen, that appearance uh, that this offensive by the Houthis was started around the same time that the designation was lifted, um, you know, seems um, problematic. I wanted to ask you, though, um, who does have diplomatic or any sort of leverage over the Houthis at the moment? And, you know, is there any opportunity to exert whatever leverage there is to get the Houthis to roll back this offensive? Yeah, so that's a couple of different questions. So I'm not sure on the offensive right now. I don't know if there's a whole lot of steps that can be taken. I think the offensive, we're now at the point where the offensive is either going to succeed or it's going to fail on sort of the military front. And I'm not sure if the diplomatic track is flexible enough or quick enough to really um, make any sort of changes over the next couple of weeks or, or month. But long term, I do think that there are opportunities um, to create leverage vis-a-vis the Houthis for, for both the U.S. and the U.N. So right now, we've talked about the Houthis and the U.S. Re, uh, revoking the foreign terrorist organization. And, and we should be clear, the Houthis have carried out a number of very horrendous acts. They've disappeared people. Um, they've cracked down on women. They've um, arbitrarily detained journalists. They've dynamited homes of their opponents. So they've acted in a very um, uh, poor manner. And they've they've I think are are probably guilty of a, a number of different war crimes for for their conduct in in Yemen. The UN and the US both have targeted sanctions programs against Houthi leaders. Um, so 
The problem with this, however, is the way that the UN in particular designed the targeted sanctions program was the UN basically designated the top Houthi leader, a guy named Abdul Malik al-Houthi, as well as one of his younger brothers and a top lieutenant. And they did both of those designations, two came in November of 2014 and one in April of 2015. So the UN played their their sort of sanction card very early in the game, right after the Houthis took control of Sana'a. And they sanctioned, instead of sort of starting at the mid-level and slowly sanctioning people and allowing the Houthis to sort of feel the pressure as it builds up, the UN sanctioned the top people immediately. And then once it played that card and that card didn't work, then it now has no other cards really to play when it comes to sanctions. So it's very difficult then to sort of go back and start sanctioning mid-level people and try to get the Houthis to um, to change their behavior in any way over 2021 or, or into 2022. That being said, I think that both the U.S. and the U.N. can can do some things. There are some steps that they can take. So the Houthis are aware of where they live, and they know that Saudi Arabia is right on their border. Saudi Arabia is militarily stronger than the Houthis, even though the Houthis have been able to hold and defend this territory in northern Yemen, which is pretty rugged and, for the most part, very mountainous territory up there. The Houthis know where they live, and I think that the Houthis would be amenable to some sort of a deal with Saudi Arabia. The difficulty, though, for the U.S. is trying to work a situation in which you're able to put Yemen back together as one state. So that would be the goal for the U.S. That would be the goal for the Yemeni government. But that would require convincing the Houthis that they would go from being essentially the state in northern Yemen to being part of a unified Yemeni state. And I think that's really the the key question right now is can you can you convince the Houthis that they should be part of a unified Yemeni state? And I don't think anybody's going to be able to do that. So then you have to look at, okay, what does a fractured or a fragmented Yemen look like? So the Houthis would probably be very happy to create some sort of a, a peace deal or a priest treaty with Saudi Arabia that kept them in charge in Sana'a. That's what Saudi Arabia, that's what the Yemeni government, that's what the U.S. has said that they don't want to do. And so that's really the problem um, that the diplomats face at this point. I mean, you are describing what just sounds to me like such a fraught diplomatic agenda. And frankly, it seems like the prospects for success of any sort of political agreement between, say, the Houthis and the Saudis seems very remote, let alone uh, the other uh, multitude of local conflicts that you suggested are another layer of conflict in Yemen. So I guess barring any potential diplomatic solution or political solution, what can be done, if anything, to at the very least reduce the level of humanitarian suffering in in Yemen. I mean, basically, based on everything you're describing, it sounds like you know there is no peace coming anytime soon. Is there anything that can be done to at least not make make Yemen not the worst humanitarian situation in the world? Well, I think so. I think there can be some sort of a peace 
when it comes to the second war, the regional war that the U.S. and the U.N. are really working on. And I think Saudi Arabia is looking for a way out. And the U.S. is certainly in a position to pressure Saudi Arabia. Then the question becomes, can the Houthis, will the Houthis actually agree to this? And then what happens after Saudi Arabia withdraws and this local civil war, if you sort of buy the argument that I made earlier, what happens when this local civil war takes off? Does it become a situation like Afghanistan in the 1990s where the major players pull out and it's just these various local warlords who are fighting it out. Um, I think that the counterterrorism issue, I think shipping lanes, and I think the humanitarian crisis suggests that the U.S. and the EU and Saudi Arabia would continue to be involved there. And I think that's that's the hope, is that um, if if this regional war can can end, then the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and the people who are going to be financing Yemen's reconstruction, if, if we ever hopefully get to that point, are countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They'll be um, sort of bearing the brunt of that cost, getting them to continue to exert pressure on the players on the ground to come to some sort of a solution. But I think the really difficult um problem is going to be, you know, Yemen is basically Humpty Dumpty. It's fallen and it's broken into all of these numerous pieces. I count about seven right now. And the the question is, can we put Humpty Dumpty back together again? And I, I'm not very optimistic on that question. I don't think Yemen can be put back together again as one state or as two states. But then where that leaves the US, where that leaves Saudi Arabia, where that leaves sort of the regional situation um, really remains to be seen. And if you have a situation like that, um, and if you have a broken economy, and we haven't really talked about Yemen's economy, but Yemen essentially has two economies, which is driving part of the humanitarian crisis at the moment, is rapid, rapid inflation, the decrease in value of the Yemeni real over the past six years, which means people's salary stays the same, but their their money buys much, much less than it ever has before to the point where many families have to go into debt in order to try to buy food and people are just surviving. And if this war continues to go on for the next few years, um, then you're looking at even a much worse situation than, than we're currently in. So there's not a, as ever when talking about Yemen these days, there, there's not a lot to be optimistic about. Um, do you have like a, another couple more minutes? I had a question sure. on the economy thing. This question now might seem like a tangent, but you opened it up by by mentioning the Yemeni economy. <laughs> One thing that I have been struck by, and to be honest, I really like don't understand how this works, um, but there are apparently like what, two different central banks and two different yes. currencies and that each bank and each currency are like using inflationary pressures to try to starve the other side. Like, I, I don't quite understand, like, the economics of how that works, but uh, can you just describe that situation, which seems just absolutely sort of wild and really terrible to me? Yeah, it's a, it's a really bad situation. So basically, the Houthis took over the capital of Sana'a in October of 2014. And really, by January of 2015, they had placed the then transitional president, President Hadi, who's 
still the president today. He, he, president Hattie is someone who came into office in 2012, was supposed to be there as a transitional figure for two years, ending in 2014. Well, it's 2021 and he's, he's still in office. So the Houthis took control of the Capitol and in the Capitol was the central bank. President Hattie, who was under house arrest, escaped, went south to Aden, eventually went into exile in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia starts this war that they call Operation Decisive Storm in March of 2015. In 2016, so about you know a, roughly a year after um, after the war has started, President Hadi is worried that the Houthis are doing funny things with the central bank in Sanaa. So he decides, and it should be pointed out that he goes against the advice of most of the people in the IMF, the World Bank, the UN, the US. Everybody is telling him not to do this, but he goes ahead and he does it anyways. He splits the central bank and basically cuts off the central bank in Sanaa, um, cuts it off from the international banking system, and he starts a new central bank in Aden, which was his temporary capital. So now you basically split Yemen in, in two, split the economy in two. The problem is once you have one sort of semi-functioning bank and you break it and you try to make two new ones, or at least for Hattie, one new one in Aden, and the Houthis are trying to put the one together back up in, in Sana'a, then you have this situation where neither of them really work. And so it took the central bank in Aden until really 2017 before it could really even get back onto the international banking system and start to do the things that it was supposed to do. Um, there was a currency shortage, so the Yemeni government started to um, print new currency abroad and then bring it back. The Houthis have banned that new currency from coming into areas under their control. So between the split of the two central banks, between the currencies, it's all Yemeni reals, but there were some new banknotes that are issued that the Houthis don't recognize, that the Yemeni government does recognize. And of course, as we talked about earlier, 60 to 70% of the population is under Houthi control, but the Houthis aren't recognized as an international state except by two countries. This is Iran and Bashar al-Assad. Syria are the only two countries that recognize the Houthis. So you have this situation now where you have two separate economies. And in fact, the Yemeni real is trading at vastly different rates in the capital of Sana'a versus the Hadi's temporary capital of, of Aden. And it should also be pointed out that President Hadi does not um, even have control over his temporary um, capital of Aden. This is mentioned. This is held by a group we haven't mentioned yet, a Southern secessionist group called the Southern Transitional Council. They have military control over Aden, where Hadi's central bank is is located. So, you know, it just if we go back to say January of this year, a month ago, the Yemeni real was trading at I think about eight thirty two to one against the U.S. dollar in Aden, and trading at about six hundred to one against the dollar in in Sanaa. And of course, there are a number of businesses in Yemen that um, have offices in Sanaa or in Aden. So when you have a currency that's trading at different values, of course, that opens up all sorts of opportunities. For, for less scrupulous dealers and people looking to um, to make some quick money. I mean, this is just like a mess on top of a mess. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very bad situation politically, economically. There, you know, it's been going on for six years. There are no easy off-ramps to, to solve all of Yemen's different wars, to solve all of the different crises. Um, there's a shrinking economic pie in Yemen. And the longer the war goes on, the more armed groups we see sprouting up. 
that are all trying to get a larger and larger piece of what's becoming a smaller and smaller pie. And that's driving a lot of the conflict. And also, I mean, we should be honest, the conflict is good for some of these armed groups. They're doing a lot more. Um, they're making a lot more than than they would any other way. And Yemen is in such a bad situation right now that in many areas of the country, the only opportunity for young men um, to find employment is through an armed group or through the military. So lastly, you know, is there one or two or three things that you would recommend the new Biden administration do to at least nudge the situation in a better direction right now? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the Biden administration is taking a, a lot of good steps. I mean, this war started, the Saudi-led war in Yemen started under the Obama administration. The Obama administration signed off. The Trump administration gave the Saudis largely a green light for, for much of uh, the Trump administration's four years. And the Biden administration has been pulling back and is trying to use U.S. leverage to get Saudi Arabia out. I think the the thing, the most important thing for the Biden administration is to have a clear-eyed view of what's actually happening on the ground and not to confuse the end of the Saudi-led war in Yemen with the end of the war in Yemen, because the war in Yemen is not going to end when Saudi Arabia withdraws from Yemen. And that's going to be when the U.S. really needs to um, have utilize a lot of its diplomatic muscle in Yemen is the day after Saudi Arabia withdraws. And I think if the Biden administration really needs to be preparing for that day uh, right now. Uh, Well, Gregory, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Gregory. That was very helpful and interesting. And uh, we'll see where this, this situation evolves. Um, as I mentioned at the outset, please feel free to get in touch with me. I love hearing from you. If you love this podcast, please uh, leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. You can leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or just share the podcast with friends and colleagues. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.